array of voices and sounds from Cambridge and beyond. Presented by me, Olivia Hilton Pennant. And me, Matt Evan Green. Loading this week's sound. Please hold. Applying to university, I was the first in my family to be applying. Many young LGBT plus people are having to return to hostile family environments as their jobs and accommodation options disappear. It's been one of the most heartbreaking experiences of, of my career is talking to people through a mask, unable to, to sit, to hold their hand, to do all the, the stuff that we normally do to comfort them. Ready to connect you to this week's sounds. First up on Switchboard this week, it's Corona Board, where we take a deeper look at some of the ethical considerations and socio-political implications of the pandemic. To do this, we connect you with some of the most familiar coronavirus news stories from a variety of different angles. Last Sunday evening, Boris Johnson announced to the nation that the lockdown measures that have been in place in England since the 23rd of March would be eased. In practice, this means slight changes for everyone, with a slight easing of social distancing measures, but big changes for some, with those who can't work from home being quote-unquote encouraged to return to work. Since then, many have raised concerns over both the necessity and safety of these changes, alongside the way in which they are announced. I spoke to Louis Dexter, a second-year student at Cambridge whose family were directly implicated by this announcement on Sunday evening. I began by asking him whether the following words from Boris Johnson resonated with the reality for him and his family after this announcement on Sunday evening. I have been supported and we believe in it. And one of the things, that one of the differences between this crisis and 2008 is we really do want to look after the, the working people in this country, look after people uh, who need our help. They're our, they're our, our priority. And look, it's you're the complete opposite of prioritising working class people. It's literally throwing them under the bus for the purposes of trying to salvage the economy. BME people are dying like disproportionate amounts, working class people are dying disproportionate amounts and the government isn't doing anything about it and they're actually sending people back to work. My older brother is self-employed as an electrician so he's had to go back to work now basically because otherwise he probably won't be able to receive financial support properly. My sister's husband is a tree surgeon so he's been back to work despite mostly living with my sister who's asthmatic. It just creates some kind of a divide where some people who are middle class and who work in offices and stuff like that, they can just have the luxury of sitting inside. Um, but the reality is if the government's saying, you know, you, you should work where possible, well, it's going to be possible for working class people and they're going to have this pressure now to go and put themselves in a dangerous environment and put people who they care about at risk. I also spoke to Dr Andrew Conway Morris, an intensive care unit researcher who works primarily at the University of Cambridge, to get his take on this week's changes to the lockdown. So my name's Andrew Conway Morris. I uh, am a academic intensive care consultant in Cambridge. Uh, I split my time between the university and the NHS. Uh, at the moment, I'm working full-time for the NHS. I've been fully redeployed from the university. Uh, my sort of normal job uh, is as a senior research associate in the university and a Wellcome Trust fellow, which ordinarily would take up about 80% of my time and about 20% of my time would be spent doing clinical work in the intensive care unit. Obviously, with coronavirus coming along, that's changed uh, priorities somewhat. Uh, and as I say, since um, the uh, sort of end of March, I've been seconded full-time to the NHS working in intensive care. I began by asking him if he had any professional concerns about the changes to the lockdown measures that were announced on Sunday, as well as what any future spike in coronavirus cases in the near future could mean for the NHS. The concern that I have, and I think it's fair to say that this is reflected in most of my colleagues in the NHS, in as much as I can tell that, 
uh, is that if there is a second wave of this virus, that we are already, you know, we've had to work extremely hard to, to deal with what we've done so far. That has stretched us. It may not appear to have stretched us to the limit, but it was, you know, it was extremely hard going. Uh, and I worry about our ability to cope with a, a second wave, particularly if it comes very shortly after the first wave. What I would say in terms of the messaging, my worry is not that, that people can't make sensible judgments. I think, you know, obviously the vast majority of people can. What I worry about is not the judgments that people make, but the choices they are forced to make. And once again, this comes back to the whole issue about the people who've been most vulnerable in this uh, in this pandemic. Obviously, the, the, the elderly. Um, and they have, you know, relatively limited choices about what they, you know, how they can, can get food and, and essential services and so forth. But actually, the people who I'm most worried about now are the, uh, the people who are the poorest and most deprived, but who are of working age, who are the ones who are most likely to be coerced back into work uh, when it isn't uh, safe or appropriate to do so. And whilst I'm sure they can all make their own judgments about the risk, of, of what they're being asked to do. They don't have the, uh, the ability to make that choice uh, to, to stay at home. And I think we can see that, you know, the, the Office for National Statistics uh, figures that came out a couple of days ago showing the differential mortality rate amongst different professional groups. And once again, it, it's very clear, those who have the ability to work from home, uh, who are disproportionately the well-off, uh, the well-provisioned, have a much lower mortality than those who can't deliver their work from, from home, those who have uh, community-facing roles uh, in care homes, on public transport. Obviously, the mortality from this condition has been devastating. Um, you know, I think at a national level, we're looking at about 30% of patients who are admitted to a hospital dying. Um, obviously, the mortality in non-hospital settings, such as care homes, is even higher than that. In an intensive care unit, um, somewhere between... 60 and uh, you know sorry 50 and 60 percent of patients admitted have died nationally you know that's a massive mortality rate and much higher than, than we would normally see so what i would say to people is you know yes the nhs is there for you absolutely it's what we signed up for um and we all stepped up and and we will all do that again uh but you can't take that for granted you mentioned the mortality rate in intensive care units I was just wondering if you could allude to the, the the mental impact that that has on nurses and other people working in intensive care units. Obviously, mortality is a common part of the job in usual times, but that's obviously such a high rate of mortality. That must be something quite different to deal with. I think what's actually made it the hardest to deal with, and the bits I have found personally most difficult to deal with, have been that I can't talk to the relatives face to face, you know, because we've uh, excluded patient uh, patients' relatives from the hospital for their own safety uh, and to try and limit the spread of this uh, really unpleasant disease. Uh, but it means that all of our interactions have to be over the telephone, and you lose through that all of your non-verbal clues, uh, all of your, uh, the, you know, the 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 other bits that go with communication beyond talking. I would say that. From from a personal point of view, has been the most emotionally draining part um, of of the whole experience, uh, and it's it makes an already difficult situation harder. Um, 
and then the other difficulty has been communication when obviously we're in uh, in the intensive care unit, you're in with patients or you're reviewing a patient in the emergency department, you're having to wear the full personal protective equipment, PPE, um, and with a mask on, a visor, and there's a, there's a real barrier between you and the patients that didn't previously exist. Um, and that, again, trying to explain to people your decision-making um, about particularly around patients who are not suitable for intensive care, um, that, that's you know, been one of the most heartbreaking experiences of, of, of my career is talking to people through a mask, unable to, to sit, to hold their hand, to do all the, the stuff that we normally do to comfort them um, because of the situation. Um, so, yeah, no, it's it's been emotionally tough as well as physically tough. And I, I wonder what the toll will have been of this on many people. And I truly hope that the mental health services will be there for us if we need them. Um, it's going to take a collective effort at a national level to get over this in many ways. Uh, we're, we're all going to need to heal. Next up is a beautiful piece written and recorded by Hafsa Siddiqui and produced for radio by Olivia Hilton-Pennant giving us a real insight into what Cambridge is sounding like during this quarantine. In between rounds of online board games last weekend, my cousins asked, isn't it really quiet there now? As an international student who is unable to return home, I'm staying in Cambridge through the crisis and have gotten somewhat accustomed to life in lockdown. I laughed and told them yes, and it is a relief to no longer be treated to the cacophony of sounds of university life. I have witnessed many boisterous post-midnight festivities of drunk passers-by outside my window. But a few nights after that virtual get-together, when I heard the crunching of footsteps on the gravel outside my flat, reminding me of those very sounds of university life, I came to the realization that the mundane sounds we take for granted should be appreciated for the ordinariness they represent. It was only when the incessant humdrum was stifled that I truly recognized how peculiar the lack of noise feels in a deserted university town. The sounds that I had gotten used to over the past few months since I arrived in Cambridge have been ousted by new ones. The leisurely clinking of cutlery at formal halls has been replaced by urgent taps at my keyboard in preparation for end-of-year deadlines. College chapel choir's harmonies have been overtaken by worryingly frequent ambulance sirens. As a result of this change in sounds, there is a growing sense of anticipation in the air for the noises that are no longer being made. Stacked up inside empty boathouses, rowing blades hang around until they can splish-splash through the river camp. Parked bicycles are keen to screech down busy roads and meander through webs of honking traffic. Idle instruments are counting on musicians to come back and free their trapped notes. Real life may be quieter, but online it is not. We have swapped the reverberant rhythms of Mayballs with the melodic masterpieces that are Instagram concerts. Laptops have come alive with the chimes of calendar reminders for virtual events. Glitches on Zoom and Skype release the intimate background noises of colleagues' homes. 
Procrastination-induced Netflix binges allow show theme songs to ring out. Facebook and Twitter are animated by loud, loud debates. Buzzing phone notifications lead to genuine conversations about well-being and coping methods. In the digital academic world, there is the hubbub of webinars, e-conferences, lectures, lightning talks, workshops, and supervisions, all calling out for attention. Most people would agree that smells trigger memories, but I feel it is the same with sound. The crackling of every future fireworks display at Midsummer Common will conjure up the balmy Thursday evenings when we celebrated healthcare workers. Boarding announcements will bring back a time when travelers were rendered immobile. When I get the chance to speak to my family in person, I'll think of the many hours their muffled voices came through on telephone calls. Even if silence is upon us, it is possible to make the most of it. Jalal ad-Din Rumi, a Persian poet and Islamic scholar, wrote, The quieter you become, the more you are able to hear. While this quiet may not have been our choice, we can use the opportunity to reflect and consider the thoughts that would otherwise get pushed aside. We can reignite our passions for the goals we didn't quite get around to achieving. We can get to know ourselves better, so that when we go back outside, we can connect with others on a deeper level. The tranquility of lockdown, though uneasy, provides the much-needed chance to recharge. We just need to embrace it. Next up, we take a look at the impact of Kusu's newest liberation campaign, Class Act. Class Act was established by then Kusu Access Officer Aaron Attridge in 2017 and became an official liberation campaign in 2018. Class Act works to support students from low socioeconomic backgrounds during their time at Cambridge. Members of the Class Act campaign are any student at the university who self-identifies as having experienced social, educational, cultural or economic disadvantage, including, but not limited to, being working class, low income, first generation, care experienced or estranged. Although lots of work is done around access in terms of getting Class Act students into Cambridge, work in the area of getting on at Cambridge is still in its infancy. A little over a year ago, the Kusi Women's Campaign added a Class Act representative to its committee, and some colleges, including Homerton and Fitz, now have Class Act officers on their JCR, with other colleges taking steps in a similar direction. We spoke to Kirsty, Class Act officer at Fitz, to find out more. I am Class Act officer at Fitzwilliam. So it's about making sure that once the access team has got those Class Act students into Cambridge, they then feel like they can have just as fulfilling an opportunity as any other student at Cambridge by um, seeing that people from their backgrounds are represented and welcomed and being helped out by the college. Probably the main reason that FITS has been one of the innovators of this role is because um, FITS has a long-standing history of access. So FITS was set up originally to help students who couldn't afford the college bill to study at Cambridge and it's part of that long history of being committed to access that means that the students and the staff at FITS are particularly keen to make sure that that commitment is reflected in the JCR positions. So I think it was just quite a natural and fairly simple process to get a class act officer on the JCR because 
everyone at college sort of understood the importance of that access role. It's only recently that I've actually realised that other colleges are not as lucky as FITS in that this role is quite an unusual role. To me, I just thought it was something that most colleges had. I didn't even realise that it was so novel. And how would you say that Class Act has helped you to navigate your experience of Cambridge so far? When I was thinking about applying to university, I was the first in my family to be applying and I came from um I came from a school where that was fairly normal as well, you know, not everyone came from academic backgrounds. So when I was applying to uni, I was expecting to not be any different from anyone else there. And then to arrive at Cambridge and realise that people already know how lectures work or that they've got to do extra reading or that they are aspiring for a 2-1 or a first when I didn't even know what a 2-1 or a first meant. I then started to feel a little bit different then and that's sort of the first time when I realised that actually coming from the background I've come from is an achievement based on the um, underrepresentation of those backgrounds at Cambridge. So to then actually realise that there's a group of people who have come from similar places and who are here to support me and to give me opportunities to access um, the Cambridge life that I may not have got without such a team. It just it just helps me to feel more welcome here and to access things that I may not have accessed. So as part of working with Class Act and the First Generation Society, I've been able to go to Oxford to meet similar students there for a formal dinner. They did a formal dinner at Trinity where I could interact with all the Class Act students at Cambridge. Um, as part of my role, I've done a cooking scheme at FITS where a professional chef gave free lessons to um any student at FITS, but particularly targeted to Class Act students. I've got uh, tickets to a FITS music show to be offered for free to Class Act students. So again, making sure that people aren't missing out on university social life because of their financial status. And I think that that's a, another reason why the Class Act role is important as a welfare role, because of course, it's important for people to come here to study. But also, if you come in here from a background where you may not be able to afford to go to varsity every year or to go to balls every year or to go to formals every night, it's really important that there's a team of students working to create similar or different opportunities for those students to make sure that people aren't missing out or feeling isolated and different because of their socioeconomic backgrounds. You mentioned that Class Act events and initiatives are run by Class Act students for their peers. Do you think that that should be the role of students? And what more do you think that the university can do to improve the experiences of Class Act students? I believe it's this year that the Foundation Year and or Bridging Programme is due to launch. To answer the first half of that question, I think it is important that Class Act is to some level student-led because the issues that class act students face are sometimes quite novel and depending on the society that we're living in now so if you think about generations in the past so perhaps the adult staff who could be involved 
for them, access to university was uh, free in some years. They didn't have to pay the tuition fees to get in. Um, so if I think it helps to have students leading the team at the moment because they're dealing with the modern class act problems that we have to deal with. So they are able to probably relate a bit better to student struggles now. But equally, in order for those students to be able to make a wide change in Cambridge, we need to have uh, staff support helping to make sure that those changes are implemented um, on the college level and on the university level. So with that in mind, I think some really important things that uh, university staff could do as a whole would be to first encourage and perhaps even enforce all colleges to have a class act officer to make sure that those problems are being dealt with on a collegiate level and to make sure that students from class act backgrounds don't need to think tactically about which college they pick because all colleges will then be um, dealing with class act students um, equally. So at the moment, if you're a class act student and you know that Fitz or Hamilton has a class act officer, then you may be more inclined to apply there, which isn't fair for those students to have to feel like only some colleges would be welcoming them on a policy level. But then also for educational life, I think what can happen a lot of the time is that students from class at backgrounds are sold this promise that they're able to access Cambridge. And, you know, Cambridge do do, in my opinion, a really good job of um, targeting schools that have a high level of class act students and promoting their entry to Cambridge and making it accessible. But then once those students, such as myself, get here, it can sort of feel like um, you can sort of feel like they're just like letting you go into the world of Cambridge without much extra help from there. And I think when you're coming here and you don't really, you might not know what lectures are, which was the case for me. I thought it would be very similar to A-level classes where you just listen to the teacher and then learn what they told you. I didn't realise you had to do all the extra reading and um, I didn't realise quite how independent the learning had to be. Um, so that took quite a while for me to just naturally learn how to adjust, whereas if there was, like you mentioned, the foundation year or some sort of skills programme that you could do in advance to arise, arrive in to just help, um, to just create an extra stepping stone to go from A-levels to university. I think that's another thing that the university could do to make um, the experiences of Class Act students easier once they arrive here. Now, last up on the switchboard this week, it's Varsity Out Loud. In the wake of the first ever Lesbian Visibility Week, Xiang Wei critiques the mainstream focus on the politics of representation and corporate sponsorship, suggesting that liberation instead relies on pursuing structural and material changes. Lesbian Visibility Week should inspire radical alternatives beyond capitalist-orientated representation politics. By Xiang Wei. Last week was the first ever Lesbian Visibility Week, and, as with everything these days, I found out about it on Twitter. Without knowing anything more about it, as a lesbian, I was mildly excited. 
Lesbian Visibility had previously been limited to Lesbian Visibility Day, established on the 26th of April 2008. It was also an opportunity to draw attention to the particular difficulties young lesbians might be experiencing at the moment, when so many are being forced physically back into the closet. For many students, going to university can be the first time we're able to conceptualise our own desires and live lives we've never dreamed of, away from homophobic family members or stifling home environments. The shutdown of campuses marks an abrupt and extreme end to the sense of possibility. Across the country, many young LGBT plus people are having to return to hostile family environments as their jobs and accommodation options disappear. Others still are facing homelessness at disproportionate rates. This context, however, also made it particularly jarring to scroll down the official Lesbian Visibility Week website and see that what appeared to be fun, patterned backgrounds are actually tessellated logos of large corporate sponsors, Tesco, GlaxoSmithKline and Procter & Gamble, to name only a few. I also learned that Lesbian Visibility Week is run by Diva Media Group, Europe's biggest LGBTQI media group, and that the headline content of their survey and digital sessions were overwhelmingly geared towards experiences at work, networking events and career progression. The caption for an Adweek article puts it quite plainly. Lesbian Visibility Week isn't just about putting a face to the community. It's also about getting brands and advertisers to see queer women as a viable market. As a lesbian, I resent this, and I find it sinister and exhausting rather than inspiring. Visibility and representation are useful, but only to a point. I'm glad that Diva were able to run a daily programme of sessions for lesbians and bi women, allowing people to interact digitally where the physical community is for now impossible. But the truth is that the problems on display are far from limited to Lesbian Visibility Week itself. They're a symptom of the structural conditions of philanthropic capitalism. Crumbs of material and financial investment in the interests of marginalised people are squeezed out of large corporations in exchange for the uncomfortable feeling that their true motives lie in the opening up of the queer women market. In a word, profit. I know that all the things that we need to organise for our liberation cost money, and that in this system, money inevitably accumulates in the hands of a corporate ruling class. Corporate social responsibility is about the rest of us asking nicely if we can please have some scraps, and I viscerally hate what this need to compromise has done to the mainstream face of LGBT plus activism. Lesbianism, in particular, is and always has been about so much more than commercialised visibility and corporation-approved representation. It's about defending the possibility for women to have lives and desires that are oriented towards each other, in which men can be completely irrelevant. Any lesbian will recognise how thoroughly women are still conditioned to imagine our existence in relation to male desire, and how difficult it is to escape. Corporate visibility might feel like a solve, but as a project of liberation, or as Diva put it, lifting up those who are most marginalised, it's doomed to failure from the start. If we return to thinking about the problems lesbians and other LGBT plus people are facing now, it's clear that they're structural and material. What the lockdown highlights is how deeply the Thatcherite ideology of private household unit over any collective social responsibility has ravaged this country, and how vulnerable it makes LGBT plus people and others to abuse in the home without any recourse to refuge. What a lesbian project of liberation might mean, then, is the abolition of the private nuclear household as the basic unit of capitalist society and economy, which ties women to men through the nexus of biological reproduction. This is the material foundation for compulsory heterosexuality and homophobia, and this material foundation is also what ties LGBT plus people to unsupportive or abusive households. 
I am lucky enough to be in lockdown with LGBT plus friends rather than with my own family and to have forged new online spaces surrounded by fellow lesbians and bi women I know. But lesbian survival shouldn't just be a matter of individual escape through relatively privileged circumstance. And while the mutual aid networks emerging across the country have been invaluable to saving countless lives, we should not be confined to redistributing our diminishing resources amongst ourselves while the ruling classes continue to turn a profit and the government divests itself of responsibility for our lives. It has never been enough for a lesbian CEO to be visible, while the system she valorises is the one that holds us all captive. This is a situation that calls for revolution. If the pandemic forces us to think more about how the neoliberal consolidation of the nuclear family can harm us, then it's only appropriate to mark a week dedicated to lesbians by thinking seriously about how we can reimagine structural alternatives. Thanks to everyone who contributed to Switchboard this week. If you're interested in getting involved, please join the contributors group, which you can find on our Facebook page. Please subscribe wherever you're listening to this. And if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating. It would mean a lot. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for Varsity Switchboard. Switchboard is produced by Olivia Hilton Pennant and Matt Evan Green. Thank you for calling the Switchboard. Please call again next Friday to be connected to another round of Voices and Sounds.